Thank you for listening to the Redeemer podcast. Redeemer exists to make the gospel of Jesus known in our city, region, and world. Subscribe to the Redeemer podcast to not only access our weekly sermons, but also select special talks and lectures by myself and our guest speakers. If you want to know more about Redeemer and how you can be a part of what God is doing through our church, go to www.redeemerbible.ca. Thank you, and we hope that you're blessed by what you're about to hear. We're carrying on the book of Acts, and we're into probably the most preached about passage in the book of Acts. It's um, Acts 2, 42 to 47, and then we're going to jump and also read Acts 4, 32 to 37. So two short passages. Let me read that now. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what, they sold, what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay, so, imagine Canada is a big, old-fashioned picture-tube television. Okay? And if you're not old enough to remember TVs like this, you're going to have to trek with me. You can Google it on your phone. Um, so, if this was Canada once upon a time, what loomed large across Canada was Christianity. We had Billy Graham, we had guys on TV. And when we refer to a culture, to a nation, that where, where Christianity is the dominant religion, and not just dominant in that most people attend uh, services of that religion or adhere to it or believe it, but a religion, and Christianity specifically, that dominates the shaping of the culture in every way, be it social, legal, ethical, or moral. When a country is dominated by one religion that way, specifically Christianity, it's called Christendom. So historically, Western, you all, most of you, have only lived in a time when Christianity was the dominant culture here in Canada. And it loomed large across the screen. We, we, we spoke in certain terms. And, and you see, in Christendom, when you live in a country like that, what ends up happening is it creates shared beliefs shared assumptions about the way the world is, that maybe not everybody is going to church and, and a Bible-thumping Christian or whatever you might call them, but they generally share beliefs about there is a God, there is truth, there is sin, there is an afterlife, something like that. And it's a shared common experience. So Christians get very comfortable in that culture, and they did, and we did. And so in, a, in Christendom, what happens is evangelism, sharing the gospel, we just heard from Jeff about this, is, is a lot easier in Christendom, in the, in the way things used to be. 
because it's, a lot of it's like connecting the dots. When someone is uh, inevitably has life problems, they have a, a, an existential crisis, they have a bad diagnosis, whatever it is, in Christendom, the default they've been trained to think is you go to a church, you talk to a pastor, you talk to a priest. And when they come to the church looking for help, evangelism in that culture is connecting the dots. We all have similar dots about God, faith, truth, values, etc. And even if theirs aren't the same as yours, evangelism means connecting them and bringing them back to something they already know something about. And in Christendom, churches expect people to come to them when they have problems. And they're kind of like convenience stores. You develop a church culture that says, I'll open my doors and people will come. If I build it, they will come. Which leads to, to what I think is a terribly broken model of the attractional model, saying if we have a really good service, excellent music, all these things, people will come in, they'll walk in. But the model doesn't work in post-Christendom. It does, not only does it not work, but the churches that stick to that die. And so what has happened over the years, especially in the last 40 years or so, but really accelerated the last 20, is the picture has shrunk bit by bit. Slowly Christian influence, the image of God in Canada, in our morals, in everything we do, is shrinking to the point of now it is this. Who remembers that? If you had a picture of Tube TV, you remember that little silver dot that would stay there for, it's probably still there. I don't know. I don't think it ever goes away. It's in a dump somewhere, and there's that dot. And Christianity has, has, has lost influence. We are no longer in Christendom. We are now in post-Christendom. We no longer dominate the way the world thinks or Canada thinks about morals and ethics and law. Quite the opposite. We're now in the minority. And if we continue to try to live in a way of saying, let's get back to Christendom days, See, that's our tendency. All humans do it. I will do it at some point. No matter how young you are, you will one day long for the leeks and onions of the previous generation. And you'll want to go back to those days when Billy Graham was on TV. It's never going to happen. And the sooner we realize that, the better. But what is interesting is this. These verses we've read have been there for 2,000 years. And every single generation of churches has had to look at them again. They don't change. And look at them and say, how do I now interpret these words into my context, into where we are now? It's not about going back. Stop trying to go back. Instead, say, here's where God has placed us, post-Christian culture. How now do we take these words, which are a blueprint for a church that honors God right, and flourishes? And how do we take it and now say, how do I live in this culture we're in now and yet thrive like that church did? And this requires hard work. It requires thinking. It requires one generation giving up an expectation to go back and the new generation, or the, oh, all generations really, accepting the truth of it's not the same and we have to try to see how are we going to reach people. This is what Jeff and his ministry are doing. We're not trying to go back. We have to figure out now, how do I reach children now? How do I reach adults now? And so that's what we're going to try to do. And this gives us a great blueprint. And I have to leave some meat on the bone every week but especially in a passage like this. But we are going to look very quickly at five things. Five things that we see here that are key to a church that will thrive in the post-Christian context. We have to think differently, engage differently, act differently, worship differently, and then finally love differently. So let's move through as quick as I can. First, it, it says right at the outset that the church devoted themselves to certain things, specifically to the teaching of the apostles, and that word devoted is, has the Greek uh, sense there of kratos, uh, power, 
powerfully committed, like really committed, that whatever they experienced in the church and with Jesus and reading their Bibles and with one another caused them to reprioritize their lives, change it radically. And they committed to a lot of things, and one of them was the teaching of the apostles. And this may sound obvious, but let me show you why it's not so obvious. When you say, I commit to the teaching of the apostles, what you're saying is that the Bible and what it teaches is now the primary source of nourishment and education in my life. I will now seek to not learn from the world, but instead learn from the apostle, uh, apostles' teaching. And today, you continue to devote yourself to the apostles' teaching, not because I'm an apostle, goodness no, but what I'm trying to do is teach you what the apostles taught. And so people, when they come to church, are still committed to the apostles' teaching. But it seems like, duh, you're like, of course, Carl, that's what Christians do, but not so, not so much. This is why it's so radical, why the church could change the world, though it was persecuted more heavily than we certainly are now. So today, let me use an example. Today, we know that it's, it's a terrible stat, but Canadians spend, no, only one nation spends more time online than Canadians. It's America. And we're at 11 hours and 30 minutes a day on average online. We know that 96% of Canadians are on some sort of social media platform, one or more. We also know that 57% of Canadians spend at least four hours a day on social media. 25% spend eight hours a day on social media. And that's overall. If you go to younger generations, to our teens and our 20-year-olds, and even up down to eight years old, that number skyrockets. And so when you are online and on social media specifically, you're not just a neutral agent. You know, it's not like you're just there and you're not absorbing what comes to you. When you analyze who we're following on social media, what accounts we're looking at, whose news we're reading, the top 10 things that we follow as Canadians are these. I'll put them up on the wall, the next uh, long list there. They include celebrities, musicians, and this is in order, by the way, of uh, percentage of how many we follow. Uh, family is first, but then we have celebrities, musicians, TV shows or channels, comedy uh, or meme uh, parody accounts, um, restaurants, brands that we either want to buy from or are buying from, influencers and athletes. So when you sit in front of the TV or in front of your phone and you are looking at these things, it's not passive. What you're doing, and this is, I'm going to use a word that's ancient, but it's relative today, re relevant today, it's a word catechizing. You're being taught something. Every time you sit and look at social media, make no mistake, someone is tell telling you how to live. It is saying this is the sort of life that is, that is meaningful. This is the important thing. This is, this is what right and wrong is. This is what is valuable, what isn't valuable. This is how you, and basically the one driving line you hear in all social media is live the life that makes you happy. So we're being catechized, okay? We're being taught something. Now, we know as well, this just came out two weeks ago, uh, a Gallup survey in the, state, in the United States says that between 8 and 18 years old, if you're on social media and you spend more than five hours a day on social media, you are 60% more likely to experience suicidal thoughts or harm yourself. You're 2.8 times more likely to hold negative views about your body and 30% more likely to report feeling extreme sadness or depression. Social media. So we can't just think, oh, it's, I'm just scrolling on my phone, it means nothing. Listen, everything is telling you a story. Everything is telling you a story. And because the world is hammering us with story after story after story, the, when we say we devote ourselves to the biblical teaching of the apostles, understand what we are doing here. This is a counter-catechesis. 
we are trying to create and teach counter to the one you're hearing out there. Because if you're on social media four hours a day times seven, that's 28 hours a week. How many hours are you sitting here listening to Carl? 30 minutes? So really, what we're doing is we're trying to resist that culture. We're trying to push back against it in some way. And how do we do it? And this is important if you're a parent, if you're a, certainly if you're a pastor or a teacher of some type, but if you're a parent as well, how do you catechize your kids, or put more in the modern context, how do you immunize your children? See, we've, historically what we've done, and this hasn't worked because here we are in post-Christendom, so whatever we've done hasn't been perfectly effective. We have thought it's enough that you learn and memorize Bible words, Bible scripture passages, and you learn hymns, and you uh, go to the to VBSs, and these things are good. They're very good. But they don't necessarily inoculate you, your children or you from the culture. What inoculates them is something, a very different sort of teaching that the apostles show in not just in Acts, but in all the New Testament. All the Bible says this. And I'm going to try to break it down to how we do this, and you can do this as parents, and how I've tried to do it, to do it and I've seen it work, and I've stole it from smarter people than me as well. When there is an issue in the church, pick any issue at all. What we have to do, the first thing to counter the world's teaching is we need to identify what the world is teaching. So I'm going to use an example as we go through of gender identity, okay, because it's a popular topic. So first we have to identify it to our kids, to our churches, to ourselves. We have to say, what is the issue that we're trying to address? What is the teaching of the world that we're trying to address? So we identify it. And what is the gender issue? Well, now very different than human history ever, we now say that your gender is fluid. You can now choose what you want, and regardless of your biology, you are what you feel yourself to be. That's the issue. The next thing you do, and this is going to sound strange, but let me qualify it, we have to affirm it. Let me tell you what I mean by that. I know that scares Christians. You don't, what you do here is this. You don't affirm the worldview, but you look as a Christian into what in that view is actually good. Let me explain what I mean by that and why it's important. If you miss this step, you actually will harm the next generation. You have to look and say, listen, here's what's good about the gender problems we're having. It's exactly what you should expect in a fallen world where people have unmoored themselves from God. When you have run away from the source of your identity, it's logical that you're going to be scrambling and searching for an identity. And so we affirm the fact that, hey, at least you're, you're, you're looking. The fact that you're looking is evidence that you live in exactly the sort of world the Bible says exists, ones where we are wanderers in the land of wandering. So we don't affirm the view, but we do say, hey, the reason you're searching, that's good. And the reason we have to affirm it is this. If you're talking to a skeptic who has gender identity, is pro that side of things, they're gonna, you're going to lose them if all you do as a Christian is say, it's evil, and don't address it. Stop it. Stop saying that. Stop saying it's evil and stopping the conversation. It's a dead conversation at that point. What you want to say is at least say, hey, you know what? Where you're coming from, I get it. But here's the next step. And this is another thing. If you don't do that, your children are going to hear it's evil, it's evil, it's evil, it's evil. Then they're going to grow up and they're going to meet somebody who's gay. And they're going to say, they don't seem evil. They seem like nice people. They're moral, they give to charities, they're, what's wrong with this? And they're going to think, we're, my parents right to call it evil outright? So you have to at least say, listen, what they're doing is logical. But here's the, this is where you can't miss any of these steps. The next step is you have to subvert the view. And you say, listen, I appreciate you're looking for identity in this world, but the way you're looking for it right now is not helpful, and it's actually causing more problems. 
because we know that when you identify as something other than your biological gender, it increases your chances of suicide, depression, anxiety. It's actually not working. So you've got the right problem. You're looking for identity, but the wrong remedy. The identity cannot be moored and found and tied to your own feelings. can't be. So you have to subvert it and show what the issue is. And this, this works for any issue. It doesn't matter if it's justice issues or political issues or vaccination issues, whatever it is. Subvert it. Show why it's unacceptable. It doesn't work. And then finally, you redirect it. And you show them how Christ presents a better option than what they're doing now. Your identity, it's good that you're searching for identity. You should, because you are lost and alienated without Christ. And the way you're looking for identity is failing you and causing more anxiety and hurting you and the world. But there is an option, Christ. He's a better option because in Christ your identity is firm and fixed and you get the peace that will elude you when you're looking for it elsewhere. And so that sort of teaching is what the apostles do, and you'll see it in Scripture. And what we ought to be doing more is training all of you and myself. How do we interact with the culture in that way? How do we not just hammer it and call it evil? That's not helpful. How do we instead win the soul without hammering them, right? And so that's part of it. That's what we try to do. We try to do it here at Redeemer as well. But it's not just about uh, thinking differently. Now, and very related, is now how do we then engage? How do we then go out and have these conversations in the world and in the context of, of this place? Um, and here's what we see at the last verse in chapter 2. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved which means that this rich fellowship, the rich worship, the rich mercy ministries and social work that they were doing as a church didn't prevent them or distract them from evangelism. Day by day means all the time. So that people are being saved. Evangelism is something that's happening constantly. They're engaging the culture all the time. It's not a seasonal outreach, right? It's not just, oh, this group of people does this outreach for us every year. I don't have to. And it's only in the fall that we do this. No. It was day by day, a constant. It was not just cultural, but it was a natural expression of their Christianity was to share their faith. And, but how do they do it? How did they engage a hostile culture in the church or in the world? How do you do that specifically? Because the world doesn't like you. They don't want to have a conversation with you. They think you're a bigot, right? So how do you have that conversation? Well, one of the things we have, I think we learn from the early church, especially people like Augustine and some of these other uh, early church fathers, they're called, is their apologetics were very different than ours. Our apologetics, meaning when we try to engage the skeptic and defend our faith, we're playing defense most of the time. We're saying, okay, well, here's proof that the resurrection could have happened. Here's proof of the virgin, why we think the virgin birth could have happened. Here's why we think the Bible is not uh, just mis uh, a mess of ideas because a broken telephone game has led to it being corrupted. And we're defending constantly. But what Augustine did, what the early church did, was actually different. They were offensive, meaning they didn't wait to just ha have questions asked. They pointed a finger at the culture, and they challenged the culture. And so Augustine would say things like, I know you say you're a just community, but you're not just. And the way you believe and the structures you've built cannot bring justice. And then he put the world on trial. And now that's not to be negative all the time, but it does mean you need to push. We need to be a people who know the culture so well that we are comfortable engaging with it and not just defending, but saying, hold on, your assumptions are wrong. So I don't need to defend myself. You have to defend why yours are right. And we have to have this dialogue and be willing to engage in this sort of a way. And 
we have to not only know the culture well enough to critique it, but we have to be all at once convicting and attractive. Because the early church was somehow able to convict the culture and say, what you're doing is wrong. The way you're living is not biblical, and it's harming everyone. But they were also doing it in such a way that, as we're going to see later, we could hear, it says that they had favor with all the, with all the people, meaning this, they could all at once hold these negative or these different beliefs in the culture, and yet be favored by the culture. So how do we as a church not just say it's evil and post crappy social media memes that mock the world, and instead challenge them and don't let them off the hook, but do it in a way that actually causes them to reflect and think and engage in dialogue? How do we do that? And that's something the church did differently, and we have to work hard at it. And we have to resist and challenge the world's assumptions about freedom, identity, beauty, love, and yet present attractive alternatives to them. Christ is the, tra- the attractive alternative. Now, it's not just about teaching people, however. The Great Commission is very clear. You teach them to obey all. And so what we see in the church is also that they had to act differently, and they did act very differently. So now let's move in that direction. And the, count- the social ethics of the early church were countercultural. They were radical at the time, and they remain radical today. I can read all the passages in what we just read, but it's very clear. You can't read it without being at least a little convicted that you're not generous, right? And it's not communism. I'll explain that in a second. So they say things like they had all things in common. They're selling all their possessions and belongings and giving it, distributing it to those who have need. Uh, No one said of their things that it was their own, but everything was held in common. Uh, There wasn't a needy person among them. They gave, they sold lands, they did what they could. And here's what we do know from this. It's not communism, first of all. Nobody at the church, there actually have been some churches who have tried to do this, but there's nothing in this passage that tells us that when you become a Christian and you're a member, these new members who just came on, that you now have to sign over your land to us. That'd be awesome, by the way. No, I'm joking. (laughs) Terrible. It's terrible. Sadly, some churches have tried that. It's not right. What What they say, though, is when there was a need... They gave to meet the need, generously. And this is the radical part that's radically Christian, radically Christ-like. They were willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage others. Not just to say, you know, as my kids will say, I want all the dessert, but if I'm, not, if I'm full, I'll let you have what I don't want. That's what my kids would say. That's what I say sometimes, right? That's not their generosity here. The generosity is not saying, I will give from the excess that I have. Instead, it's saying, I am willing to lose something so that you can have something. And it came out of this conviction that they were actually ashamed if somebody in their congregation was needing, was needy. Because they thought, my goodness, how can we be in a world and have so much and know somebody, one of our brothers or sisters, is struggling? And so out of that conviction, they were radical in giving. It wasn't just giving out of the excess, but saying, I am willing to lower myself in order to bring you up. That is hard to do. Not many of us do it, but that's what's happening here. And we know that they were generous with each other. We know that they were generous with the community. But there's something even more radical about the way the early church acted. And I can't go into all this, and I've stolen this from a wonderful writer named Larry Hurtado. Larry Hurtado has written a number of books. One of them is this book. It's in my office. I won't lend it to you, but you should buy it. I don't lend books. Is that bad of me? I'm sorry. So in this book, though, The Destroyer of the Gods, what Hurtado says, he goes through the early church, and he says, here, the church grew, even though it was the most persecuted church in the entire kingdom, the Roman Empire. Why did it grow? And he says there's at least five things, he says, that the church did differently. These characteristics were the things that were different, 
that made them flourish. And I'll go through them very quickly. First one is it was multi-ethnic and multi-racial. Okay? Second one, there was incredible neat care for the poor, which you've just seen here. And this is him studying as a historian, not just the biblical text, what we can see in historical data. Third one is they were a non-retaliatory group. In, a, in an honor and shame culture, retaliation is honor. So Christians, when they were beaten and when they were mocked, didn't retaliate. So that's something radically different for that, that time. The fourth one, they had no, well, all, val, all human life was valuable. It didn't matter if you were a baby, a senior citizen, if there was disorder, mental uh, disorders, it doesn't matter what it was, Christians came and said, all life has value. There was no gradations of human life. Okay? Nobody was more valuable. Sounds like nothing, but that was radical. If you now think this is a foregone conclusion, of course everybody's life is valuable, then I don't care if you're a Christian or not, you're just acting that way because a Christian has told you that. Because this way of seeing human life did not exist until Christianity came. Right? Children were left to be exposed and to die if they weren't the right gender. People were killed if they were, uh, had mental handicaps or anything like that, mental disorders. It's just the way life was. It was the Christians that said, don't throw away your children, literally, on garbage piles. We'll create orphanages. Christians did that. So that's a radical thing. The fifth one is they were a sexual counterculture. Christians, and you see the documents written by Romans at the time, saying these Christians don't share their beds like we do. Wives and husbands don't cheat. They don't visit the temples and have sex with prostitutes. They have a different sexual ethic than us. And now, here's what... I saw a pastor pointed out to me, it was not my original, but what's radical about this is here. The first two points, today we would categorize as liberal agenda items politically, right? Race, no racism, open to everybody, and care for the poor. Those are liberal items politically for us in Canada. The last two are conservative. No, human life is valuable. No abortions, no euthanasia, and sexual counterculture is very conservative, isn't it? No, you don't just sleep with anybody. No, pornography's not good. And then the middle one is incredibly, it's, it's unique. There's no, it, it stands outside of political classification. So as a pastor, when I see people saying, if you don't vote blue, you're not a Christian, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be rude. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm not saying you have to vote any red or, I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. I'm simply saying, do you see how Christ avoids political Labels. He is not a liberal. He is not a Christian. He is radically better and greater than all of them. And so we cannot align ourselves with other organizations and say the other is the enemy. Christianity it flourished because it pushed at all the political assumptions of the culture. Not just one. It, broke, it pushed at every single one of them. Now you can align with any group you want. I don't care. I'm not going to ask what you voted. I don't care. But what we ought to do is never assume that one is more Christian than the other. What we have to do is poke all of them. And we should be salt in the wounds of all of our political assumptions in our world. And we should present a radical alternative to all of them. We should call the conservatives to say, hey, you have to be, yes, conservative is very nice, but there's actually, you're missing this care for the poor. You're missing all of these things. And you should poke at the liberals and say, you're missing all of the value of human life and of marriage and of dignity of all these other things. We have to do this. That's what Christians did. They were radically not, or apolitical, active in politics, but not in the normal categories. So, they acted very differently. And I'll give you an example of how you try to live this way. It's very hard. I have a friend, I uh, won't say his name, but I've known him since my bartending days. He's not a Christian. 
And um, oftentimes he'll comment on my posts on social media and just try to spar with me. I love the guy. Wonderful guy. And this week on Wednesday, he sent me this text message at the top. Hey, the most Christian thing I've done in a while is not comment on your recent post. I miss all the sparring and jovial disagreement. The world could use more of it. I trust you are well. And my response is, love you, buddy. I agree. The cancel culture has removed discourse, and we are the poorer for it. And we go on to talk about his daughter, who is uh, excelling at a national level in sports and things. Listen, you know why we can get along? Now, it's partly a two-way street. Some people will not want to get along with us Christians. I get that. But it's because I've never seen him as someone to be converted, per se. I just love the guy. He's a good man. He loves his family. He wants to do right by the world. And he's, of course he's lost. Of course I poke at him and tell him he's a heathen in, in danger of hell. I tell him all the time and he jokes about it. But we kind of, I, because I have shown my commitment to him over the last 20 years, as opposed to trying to convert him only, because there's a mutual respect and love, I am well positioned so that when his worldview fails him, I will be there to talk to him. I'll be there to pray with him. I'll be there to tell him why his worldview fell and how much a better one exists. And I have positioned myself in a way to love him. And this is what we know the early church did. I've used it with you before. When the plagues hit Rome, you know, the average Roman had, let's say they had 10 friends. When the plague hits, we know 50% of the Roman population left the city. So that leaves you, if you have the plague, with five friends. We know one of them was a Christian. We know that the Christians, because the Romans themselves have written this, it's not Christians speaking about it. We can, I can show you these letters. They say, hey, the Christians are making us look bad because they're staying in the city and they're loving them and caring for them. And so three, three more of their friends would have died from the plague, the ones who stayed. Two now live. You have two friends who have lived. And you have survived because the Christian came and we know if you had simply gotten water and sleep, you would have 80% would have survived the great plague. Now, when your friends rush back, those other five, and you have seven friends again, who are you more likely to hang out with and to go over to the house for dinner and to love? The one who loved you. Because the Christians positioned themselves in such a way as they didn't, res- they didn't compromise on their beliefs, they just lived them out. And so that's one of the things our actions need to re- reflect this if we're going to be a post-Christian church. We've lost the platform. You can't go on TV and at your workplace and start handing out tracts. You'll be fired and you'll be ridiculed and canceled doesn't mean you have to give in to it, but what it does mean is we have to be wise about the generation we're in now. How do we act as Christians in this context now for the good of those who don't know Christ? So, fourth one, and I'll move quickly here because I can't say everything, is worship. They worship very differently. And I'll only say two things. First, again, Luke says, day by day, they were attending temple together, breaking bread in their homes. So this means all week, day by day. It was always Their worship was not just formal at the temple, because the Christians continued to worship in the Jewish temple until the Jews realized they weren't Jews. And then then they would meet in their homes. And so we have a rich worship life formally at the services and informally together. That did not happen in a church in a long time. Not, Not Redeemer alone. How many churches can say, every time you gather with fellow believers, it's a rich time of worship, ministry, where you're praying for each other, you're laughing, you're enjoying food, where it's rich. Not often, but that's one of the things they did. How do we recover that? And Lots of things we could say. The second thing, and this is maybe the more radical, is in verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Oh my goodness, I don't even know how to start. 
I'll start with awe. Awe is the word phobos in Greek. It means fear, terror, phobia. So the fear of God falls upon this church, and that fear of God is reverence, meaning we're aware of the holiness of God, and therefore we're not going to worship him in a way that dishonors him because he's God. So this church is all at once aware of the holiness of God, the weightiness of him, the reverence that should be in the worship service. And yet, there's miracles and the charismatic parts happening. See what's going on? This church is not one that says, no, no miracles. Jesus can't be, you know, the God, God isn't sovereign in that way anymore. Now it's just hymns, a nice tidy message. The pastor better be wearing a tie. That's not what's going on. There's all at once, I don't know how we do it, but there's all at once reverence for God and an openness to the exuberant expressions of worship. How do we do that? No one does it really well. You get churches that are really exuberant and there's no reverence. You get really reverent churches, but they're, they look, they're the frozen chosen, right? They look... Like, how do we do both? I don't know how to do both, but that's something we're trying here. We're trying to do both. I can't, so much more. But the worship of the church was rich, regular, encouraging, and diverse. And it fueled their generous lives inside and outside the church. And here's where we'll close on they had to love differently. Now, um, they had favor with all people. That's, I touched on it earlier. How do we commit to beliefs that are radically countercultural, that they don't, the culture does not accept, because they don't. How do we do that and yet be favored by people? Right? We haven't found a good balance because what happens is you either say everything's evil and the world hates you because they think you're a bigot, or you say everything's okay the world's doing and then you accept it and you become just part of the world. How do you do both? So I'm going to use an example of a real-life situation. There's a man named Langdon Gilkey. Not a, we'll put his face up there. Um, Langdon Gilkey was a, uh, a kid, in the, in, he went to Harvard, was in their philosophy program. Um, do we have the picture of Langdon? You don't have a picture? Old guy with like a, no? Okay, Langdon Gilkey. Langdon Gilkey. He passed away in 2004. But Langdon Gilkey goes to Harvard, and he's raised as a Christian, but when he goes to Harvard, he's at the philosophy department, and he loses his faith. And he comes to the conclusion at Harvard that, you know, you don't really need God, because he isn't necessary to make a good and moral world. So we're just fine without him. We, we're generally good people. Humanity says are good. People are good generally, and we don't need God. Thank you very much. So he leaves. Finishes his degree. He then goes to China to teach English. And while he's there in 1940, in 1942, I believe it is, the Japanese invaded China, and they overrun where he is working, and he is put into an internment camp, a prison, a prisoner of war camp basically, a concentration camp, but don't think Nazi one. So he's there, and the conditions are terrible. And he realizes something. He realizes in the camp that it doesn't matter if you're a Christian, if you're a pastor, whatever it is, you're horrible. Because the hardships in the camp, he sees turning Christians into greedy people who don't want to share their bread because there's not much of it, who don't want to share their blanket because there's only one. And so he, he thinks... My goodness, the first thing he notices is it shatters his view that humanity is good. He thought humanity, there he is. He thought humanity was good, and he realized, oh my goodness, he becomes disillusioned. The world stinks. People are horrible. But then he meets somebody named Eric Liddell. Eric Liddell won two gold medals in the 1924 Olympics. You've probably heard Chariots of Fire, the movie, is based, he's one of the stars of the movie. So he wins, and he's a Christian. And when he, he ends up being in the same camp as Langdon Gilkey. And he notices that while everybody else is struggling and becoming more miserable, Eric Liddell is not. 
He's organizing chess tournaments. He's visiting people in their tents. He's giving of his food. In fact, there's even a story about how he took the very shoes he wore to win the gold medals and gave them to a kid who had no shoes. So he gives everything time and again. And it led to Gilkey saying this, overflowing with good humor and love for life and with enthusiasm and charm. This is Liddell. It is rare indeed that a person has the good fortune to meet a saint, but he came as close to it as anyone I have ever known. And in watching Liddell live selflessly, be happy in the midst of great trial, and not compromise on his faith, but preach it to people as well, but also live it, he realized there's something different. In the, the world is a disaster. Humanity is a mess. But there's something different about this man. And Liddell, or Gilkey ends up not only recovering his faith, but he becomes a theologian and ends up serving the church. Now, I don't like everything Gilkey wrote, I'll be frank, but he recovers his faith. And it's because of a man like Liddell, whose life models that there's a difference between religion and the gospel of grace. There's a difference between knowing what the faith tells you you should know and living it and modeling it for the culture you're in. And this is the sort of people we are to be, if we can be. Tim Keller, commenting on that very story, says this, God's grace confronts our human pride in all situations. Only when the church is filled with people who have had such a confrontation and allowed God's grace to win out over their own sinful nature will we have a missionary encounter with the modern society. Regardless of your situation or circumstance, regardless of need or excess, regardless of previous postures or self-righteousness or shame, choose today to be a part of the missional movement that allows God's grace to win in your heart and touch those around you. Christians, stop spinning your wheels. Stop half committing, not to Redeemer, but to Christ. Stop half committing. There's a dying world out there, and they need the gospel. We're hearing it all the time. Our missionaries keep telling us. This is, we have everything. Let's start. Don't you want to be a part of a church full of Eric Liddell's? I do. Let's, let's start taking our faith seriously for Christians. And if you're a skeptic, don't you see that all of this was engineered by Christ for you? He dies on the cross to pay the penalty you could not pay. And that he is raised, and he then, with all of his, he's God. And he takes all of it and says, I'm now going to gather people who believe in me, who trust me for their life. And I'm going to turn them entirely out, away from themselves and towards you as a skeptic, you as, a, as someone who doesn't know him. And now all the resources, money, space, time, breath in our lungs, are committed to trying to make you someone who sees the goodness of Christ. He's done it for you. Your, your, your job won't do that for you. Your video games won't do that for you. Your, your, your family won't even do it for you. The only one who sought you and has given up everything to, be, to, take, to have you near him is Christ. And he's also the only one who you can serve that won't crush you because you'll serve your work and you'll think that's your identity. But when you get fired or when you retire, you'll say, now what am I? What am I now? Or your family. Family's wonderful. You should love them. But what happens when your kids leave you and you're alone in a home? Or what happens when tragedy strikes and your kids leave you? Listen, everybody's kids, you'll all be separated from your families one way or the other. By death, someone's dying. What happens then? If you build your foundation on anything that can be taken away, you're going to be always anxious. You're always going to think, well, what if I lose my kids? What if I don't have my health? What if I don't have my career? Build your life on something that cannot be taken. And it's the Christ alone. It's the only thing you can build on that is sure. 